Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Governor Maura Healey unveiled a $4 billion bond bill targeting the state's housing shortage. It could create 8,000 accessory dwelling units or in-law suites across the state. Plus, a new poll highlights the 2024 election ballot questions at the top of the list for Massachusetts voters. Results show more than 50 percent of voters would vote to remove MCAS as a requirement for receiving a high school diploma. And a Boston City Council candidate is stirring up controversy with comments about Black Lives Matter. That and more on our local news roundtable. Later in the show, from poisonous plants to dangerous garden tools, there's an unexpected sinister side to gardening. Nothing growing in the garden can stop death. In the world of crime fiction, plenty of garden-worthy plants have caused it. Just in time for Halloween, a new book digs up how writer gardeners use toxic plants for plot twists because gardening can be murder. But first, joining me now, Katie Lannon, State House reporter for GBH News. Hello, Katie. Hey, Callie. Good to be with you. Glad to have you. Also with me, Gin Dumchus, reporter for Commonwealth Magazine. Hi, Gin. Hey, how are you? I'm good. And Mike Dean, co-writer of the Boston Axios newsletter. Welcome back, Mike. Hey, thanks for having me, Callie. All right. Um, there is so much housing. Uh, to talk about housing stories, housing initiatives. I just want to dive in and see if we can try to, you know, frame it for listeners and also, you know, weed through some of the wonkiness because there's quite a bit. So I guess the first thing to put on the table is that Governor Healy has put forth this bond bill. Um, There's a lot of different parts to it, but the essence of it is what, Katie? The essence of it is trying to get a handle on the housing crisis that's plagued Massachusetts to to make housing more affordable in a whole bunch of different ways. In a way, it's something routine that the state does every five years or so, passes a housing bond bill. This one, the Healy administration is casting as historic because of the scope. At $4 billion, it's more than twice as large as the last one the state had, uh, representing the the magnitude of the situation here when it comes to housing and affordability. And there's 28 different policy proposals baked in it. So there's a lot of different things in there to, to dive into that include everything from making uh, accessory dwelling units or in-law apartments uh, more easy or easier for people to, to do on their properties. And Healy wants to allow cities and towns to adopt uh, local level taxes on high dollar real estate sales to generate more money for affordable housing that way. So lots, lots of different pieces in there trying to come at it from many different angles, including tax credits for developers, more funding for public housing, lots to unpack. Uh, Because there's so much to unpack, Gin, does this have a chance of winning the approval of all the folks that need to approve it? 
Well, with uh, anything that goes before the legislature, it'll get um, sliced and diced and and uh, reformed. And, and uh, you know, the way it's going to end up on, on Governor Healy's desk is it's, it's not going to be the same bill uh, once once it lands there. Um, but, you know, I, I think there's there's going to be um, a lot of debate over, you know, real estate uh, transfer uh, tax or fee, depending depending on how what you want to call it. Um, I'm sure there'll be a lot of debate about, um, you know, the the accessory dwelling units. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of policy uh, stuff in in this in this uh, bond bill, which is a really a borrowing bill um, that that um, I, I think it remains to be seen. Obviously, bond bills also sometimes turn into kind of you know Christmas trees where um, you know lawmakers like to add in their own things. So um, I, I think I think whatever ends up on on Governor Healy's desk is is probably going to look um, somewhat different than than what she what she filed with a lot of fanfare the other day. All right, Mike, what say you? I think what we uh, the X factor here is what we haven't really heard from the left and how they feel uh, about this kind of uh, housing move. I think we know that something is going to pass, you know, like Katie and Ken were saying, this kind of is the big vehicle that's going to move through the legislature, uh, whether or not it looks like what Healy wants it to look like by the end of the day. Um, it seems like an organization like the House Representatives, which is a little more moderate, they are probably pretty good with a, a package like this. They'll definitely make their own changes. We haven't really heard from the state Senate, though, which definitely kind of skews left. Um, and we could hear more about things like those uh, tax breaks for developers or things they might like more of, like, um, you know, the transfer tax that would kind of empower communities. Well, let's start with the real estate transfer fee, so-called. Um, uh, from what I can gather, uh, small the towns and cities are very excited about this because that gives them some control and there's a possibility of getting some revenue um, with which to address the housing crisis. And let's just call it that because it's a crisis all across the state. Um, Katie. Yes, absolutely. There's about 10 cities and towns, uh, Boston among them, that have been trying for, for years now to get the legislature's permission to adopt these transfer fees. And it's not something that's caught on with the legislature as, as a whole. The real estate industry is pretty opposed to it, arguing that, you know, anything, even though under Healy's proposal, if communities opt into this tax, it'll be borne by the seller, the cost. But they're arguing that anything, you know, anywhere you add more money, more charges into the process will ultimately drive up the pr price point, you know. But we've also seen when this idea has come up in the past, uh, Mass General Brigham, one of the biggest employers in the state, has supported it because it's it's a housing is a health issue. Housing is a workforce issue. This is something I think is going to be a really pitched debate. And again, hello, the rates are already high. I mean, I I think I would just have to, you know, roll my eyes if a real estate developer talked talk to me about higher prices because they're pretty high right now. So it, it doesn't help them if they try to drive them up further. Right. I mean, it's 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 supply and demand, and that's kind of what we're we're dealing with right now, uh, especially with with uh, interest rates rising, and and you know a lot of folks, uh, you know, they locked in those uh, sub three percent rates. Uh, I'll I'll admit I was one of them. Um, you know, so it's for, for for folks who might want to move on and might and and sell their house and buy another, they're they're feeling kind of stuck. Um, you know, and and developers are also facing those rising interest rates in terms of kind of like financing and and try, trying to get these. Uh, you know, units or, or, or homes built. Of course, this is about, uh, uh, Mike, about um, high-level uh, real estate deals. And it's, 
you know, I'm not trying to be funny because it's not funny. Uh, Massachusetts is one of the most expensive states. So, goodness gracious, it feels like that at least more than half of property that might be available is already high level. Am I wrong? <laughs> no, it's kind of the same trend we saw with uh, the concerns over the millionaires tax, the uh, you know, the four percent surtax on on incomes. It, it, when it came down to selling a house, uh, we saw it again in um, the debate over the estate tax, increasing that threshold because people's assets, middle class people who happen to own property, could find themselves in that millionaire column when it comes time to make that transaction. That's a little bit of what we're talking about here. Now, Mayor Wu's proposal um, that she has filed over the years was for um, $2 million sales. That's when that additional 2% tax would, would kick in. So yeah, we're, we're kind of talking about the, the higher stratosphere of real estate sales. Uh, and so that may not hit everybody uh, down in the middle class, but as these housing prices go up and up, uh, 1 million used to seem like a, a shockingly high amount for a, a home. Now we're looking at 2 million as really not a shockingly large amount for, you know, a middle upper class five bedroom, you know, large house for a family. So these are the kind of things that are um, not really just affecting the super rich. It is kind of being debated because the upper middle class really has a lot of skin in the game, too. So let's talk about this accessory dwelling, which I had to realize we're talking about what we would call or I would call in-law suites. Some people call them granny flats. Um, your colleague, again, has uh, made a point that this seems to be like a win-win for everybody if it got um, signed off on by all involved. It would create about 8,000 of these units. Um, I, I'm trying to figure out who's opposed to that. Right. So uh, my, my colleague, Jennifer Smith, uh, uh, wrote, wrote about this and, and uh, you know, I, I covered it uh, uh, on, on the city level um, as well, where this is something that, that Mayor Wu's administration has really been pushing um, them and the, the Boston um, Planning and Development Authority. Uh, what they view is as gentle density, where you're you're adding these these small units uh, uh, you know, in the backyard or 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 wherever, um, to to kind of help with multi generational living. Um, you know, so that way, if someone's mother, you know, uh, if you know, let's say she's eighty years old, you know, she moves out of her apartment in South Boston, moves into you know the granny flat uh, that you've made in in the back of your house, um, that frees up that apartment in South Boston, um, as well as creating a, a you know theoretically increasing the value of your home because now it has this in-law or granny flat or whatever you want to call it. Um, so um, I, I, I have seen uh, the Massachusetts Municipal Association, um, you know, they, they didn't seem all too thrilled with it because uh, basically if you're, if you're making this policy through the, the, the bond bill as, as Governor Healy is proposing, um, you're, you're basically making it much easier uh, to, to build these granny flats and the Mass Municipal Association, which obviously represents cities and towns uh, in Massachusetts, they feel like they're getting um, uh, bypassed a little bit on this. Um, you know, it comes down it comes down to control and, and how local do you want that control to be? I don't know, Mike. It just feels to me like this. I mean, it, it's eight thousand. I mean, there's a need for much, much more. But it feels to me like, wow, this is at least something that people can get their heads around, and you can really feel the immediate effect of. And it's helps people who are looking for space because we we're having a housing crisis i just don't get you know everybody can't have a piece of everything right well i, I think <laughs> that kind of 
it sheds a light on kind of the conflicts that are going into every little bit and piece of when we talk about housing. There's going to be uh, opposition to almost everything. Uh, things that look like low-hanging fruit, like this, uh, you know, with, with granny flats, which was a term that I was not familiar with <laughs> until, until yeah. very recently. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know where it came from. Yeah. Um, I always called them in-law apartments. <laughs> Me but, too. Uh, Go ahead. <laughs> but they, um, this is the kind of thing where you think, oh, well, what a great idea. But then you kind of, as you get into the weeds, you see where there is opposition from entrenched interests. And that is true of every portion of this housing debate as we go forward. This is one example of something, you know, there's also uh, building units into basements. There's the backyard units. That's more of what we're talking about here. But every step of the way and every kind of housing has parties that are also going to be opposed in one way or another or neighborhoods or towns or or just interests that are uh, against it. And so that's why this has been such a steep climb for the state to take on. All right, Katie, you can add something to that. Yeah, I think what Mike's saying is very true. And it's one of the things we see why housing legislation is so hard to pass in the legislature, because you have 200 people in the legislature with all very different districts. You have people who represent dense cities already where, you know, the idea of adding an apartment over the garage isn't that big an idea. Uh, But people in suburbs, in more rural areas, there's places where, you know, up in Lowell, where there was a debate over uh, an ADU, accessory dwelling unit ordinance, for a while, people are concerned about what it means for single-family zoned neighborhoods. Homeowners are worried about the character of their uh, their neighborhood changing. And while, again, you know, if you pitch it as something like, don't you want your, your grandmother to be able to live on the property, maybe help out with childcare, uh, things like that, it's... It's one thing, but people get really worried when you talk about zoning, when you talk about uh, property values, when you talk about the character of a neighborhood someone may be moved to because of its wide open spaces. And these are things that lawmakers are going to consider. They're going to be hearing from their constituents with whether it's, you know, I can't afford to buy a house or what are you doing to the house I already bought? Well, something we're going to have a lot of conversation, we're going to continue to have a lot of conversation about um, is the migrant shelter crisis. This is part of housing as well as a discussion. Um, And we're up against it, Katie, now. Yeah, the governor has said that the state's emergency shelter network cannot expand once it hits 7,500 families. There's no more space for people to stay in shelters or emergency units like hotel rooms. There's no more funding to support the continued expansion. And there's no more provider bandwidth. The the people who run and staff the shelters are, are spread very thin as well. And the state has a right to shelter law for, for homeless families with children, for pregnant women that's been in place since 1983. And while that law is remaining in place, the the administration is saying there's not going to be a, a guarantee that necessarily if you show up in Massachusetts in need of shelter, there might not be a bed for you. They're going to triage uh, based on family needs, uh, risks. People facing health and safety risks will be prioritized for shelter. And others, if room's not available, if there's not a bed that day, will end up on a, on a wait list. And... We don't really know what that's going to look like. Well, that's the that's the thing again. Nobody knows what the wait list means, really, on the ground. Right, and 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 I and I think you know I, I kind of to to tie it back to the to the previous conversation, just kind of the effect this is having on on local communities and and you know housing at at the uh, you know local local colleges and 
um, you know, the 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 impact of that. Uh, you know, I I, I would say it's it sounds like you know when when there's this lack of clarity um, about exactly what should happen next. I mean, typically, you know, there's potentially a lawsuit, you know, on on behalf of someone. Uh, or, or just, just to get clarity from uh, an interpretation from, from you know, legal experts who say, okay, like this is, this is what the law says. What does it mean? Um, so, you know, I, I think we could, we, we could see that. I, I don't, I don't know of any lawsuit on uh, in the works, but I'm, I'm just saying that that's, that it's a possibility. Mike, I note that the state uh, picked a Hadley Motel to house uh, some, you know, homeless folks for families. Um, well, 34 individuals from four families were at, placed at the Knights Inn. That, as we know, some of these motels and hotels have been used as temporary spaces. But it seems to me that if you're sheltered there, I mean, great, you do get shelter, but necessarily it's going to be temporary, probably shorter than one would want because, that's the, you know, that's the nature of the business of the motel or, or hotel. Right. And this is something that, you know, going back decades, part of the shelter law has uh, been using motels and hotels to kind of meet that demand as it comes in. And then the state can't. We've now maxed that out. Um, actually, that was a, a goal of uh, Governor Baker, former Governor Baker, was to eliminate families living in hotels. Uh, that was a big goal of his. It kind of came and went uh, and got close to the target. Now, because of this crisis, that goal is completely unreasonable. And those ho those hotel resources are now being maxed out. And we're also seeing a lot of conflict in those communities where those hotels are located. You know, a place like Hadley, other, you know, suburban or rural towns uh, sometimes are taken by surprise that migrant families um, are, you know, being sheltered in these hotels, motels. Uh, and uh, there's been some blowback uh, necessarily just because of the, the lack of transparency, as they would call it. So we're seeing kind of you know, nimbyism both in the housing area and when it comes to housing the uh, these uh, migrants on a temporary basis, simply because people d don't really know what's going on or really don't know the extent of the crisis. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with Katie Lannon, Statehouse reporter for GBH News, Gen Dumpschus, reporter for Commonwealth Magazine, and Mike Dean, co-writer of the Boston Axios newsletter. We're breaking down the major stories in local news. We're, we're coming up on the ballot questions for the 2024 elections, and um, people are already indicating their favorites. And one of them, interestingly enough, has to do with MCAS, the MCAS exam, which one has to pass in order to get a high school um, certificate. Anyway, uh, more than half of the people who were surveyed want that to go away. Um, before you all react to it, this uh, is a clip from WBZ News speaking with a Massachusetts public school teacher about the MCAS exam. It was like a rough week every time we had to do it. Working at a school and seeing my students struggle for, um, you get anxious because it's a big thing and like you have to pass it to pass school. Even as a student, I hated standardized testing. So, Mike, uh, were you surprised that MCAS was one of the the one of the election ballot bills that? Um, resonated the most with Massachusetts voters? I, I think it's it's resonating with Massachusetts voters because it's something that mo many of them have a firsthand, uh, you know, experience with. Um, 
it's 20 years old now. So basically, I I have the proud distinction to, to be a Massachusetts public school student who was in the first class that had to pass the MCAS to graduate in 2003. So we've been living in this era for an awfully long time. Um, plenty of parents have raised children in this era. And there's plenty of, you know, teachers and, and educators connected to it. So this is one of those things This is not an abstract kind of out of nowhere ballot question. This is something that people really, really know about in their days and lives. And so asking them in this UMass poll has found that 52% of respondents wanted to remove the MCAS as a graduation requirement, not eliminating the test itself, but just taking that graduation requirement away. Um, and that's something that a lot of people have been thinking about for 20 years. It has never been uh, extremely popular. It certainly hasn't been with educators. Teachers unions have opposed it for a long time, trying to reform the system in many different ways. And it this is uh, true of a lot of different issues on Beacon Hill. It bubbles up, it bubbles up. The legislature doesn't really do anything. There's not really much leadership. And then uh, an interest group like a teacher's union will take it to the ballot like they're doing now and asking the people, hey, you know about this. What do you think? Let's get rid of it. Um, again, I actually was surprised at the level of animosity. <laughs> uh, uh, but also what happens on the other side, I guess, um, because that's about the only requirement I am aware of for, but there must be others, but that's a big one. So that goes away. And does that mean there's no more or it doesn't seem that people have a suggestion for what happens after? They just don't want this. So, well, so I'll say just about the about the numbers. You know, I think anytime we see polling about ballot questions, the thing to keep in mind is that it's 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 a snapshot. Um, and you know, if these if these ballot question campaigns, both pro and and con, if once they get going, that will have an impact on um, you know public opinion and and how people vote. You know, you're going to have all sorts of you know facts and figures flying around. People might change their minds. The, the default for, for a lot of voters tends to be no on ballot questions because it's, you know, it's fairly easy because it's always like, if you vote no, nothing, nothing happens, nothing changes. Um, so, um, you know, I, I, I would just say like, it's, it's not, it's not clear. Uh, we might have a better sense the closer we get to um, um, the, the, the ballot, uh, the questions being on the ballot uh, of, of really how, how folks feel. Um, and then in terms of coming up with, okay, well, if, if, if you get rid of MCAS, what's what's next? That's that's really going to be probably one of the arguments that's going to come up between the pro and con groups. Okay, Katie, um, this I I thought in the polling list was highest, but there may be something else that was close to it. But this obviously got a lot of uh, deep feeling. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And I think it's one we're going to hear, as Gin was saying, a lot about. The the Massachusetts Teachers Association, uh, which backs this question, was one of the driving forces in getting that millionaire's tax passed uh, last cycle. And some of the groups that have lined up in opposition to this question include business groups that, you know, really argue that we need we need a standard, particularly coming out of the, the upheaval, upheaval of the COVID years. We, we need some sort of standard to know that a Massachusetts high school diploma need, means something. And many of those groups were already on opposing sides with the MTA on the millionaire's tax question. Um, that was a, a big money campaign on both sides. There were lots of ads. And I would not be surprised if we see maybe not the, the same dynamic, but a, a similar kind of situation as the, the campaign heats up here. All right. Um, I was also a little bit surprised, again, um, that 
this feels like a throwback. Uh, city council candidate um, decides to throw some shade, big shade, at Black Lives Matter in the middle of a forum about, you know, running for office. You know, what's that about? Sure. So uh, Bridget Nee Walsh is, is one of the, the contenders for uh, four at-large uh, city council seats. So these are citywide seats. And voters, when they go into the booth or they've mailed in their ballot, uh, you get up to four choices. Um, you don't have to you don't have to pick four, but you can pick up to four. Um, and Bridget Nee Walsh is uh, she's an iron worker. Um, you know, she's she she uh, you can see her working on the tower going up about uh, above South Station. Um, and, and, uh, but, but she, she was at this forum uh, a couple of weeks ago and, and she was asked, you know, what is, what is the, uh, the phrase black lives matter mean to you? And to her, she referred to it as divisive and she believes it set, uh, race relations back, uh, 50 years. Now, I think for, for folks who, who know the historical context of black lives matter, it's, it actually marked its 10 year, it's been 10 years since, since the, the phrase first came into the public consciousness, um, uh, so it's actually it, it it was around well before the pandemic, um, and and you know kind of trying to touch on you know the systemic racism um, in in society um, and and particularly law enforcement. So um, you know it's it's it is a controversial phrase, uh, particularly among conservatives. Um, you know, Nee Walsh has identified herself as as a right of center, while adding she's she's open minded and she'd be willing to work with uh, you know more more progressive counselors. But I think this comment. You know, aside aside from the historical inaccuracy, also kind of points to the the divide on the council between progressives and conservatives uh, slash moderates. Um, you know, where where the where the uh, the conservatives have have generally been in the minority, but um, they've been they've been pushing back on what progressives are doing, and and now that's playing out. Um, you know, on the ballot where voters get to choose, uh, you know, do do we reelect these um, these progressives and including one uh, moderate, um, or or do we go, you know, do we do we elect someone right of center to 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 represent the city uh, citywide? So that that's kind of the context for it, and and it's it's a her comment certainly spread through the the community, and and I picked it up and and uh, you know uh, spoke with a couple of folks about it and 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 uh, and wrote a story about it. Um. I want to pick up your point about uh, what the the real divide that it represents, whether she sees it or not, um, is the one on the city council currently between the progressives and the and the conservatives, which we just saw play out again in this vote uh, to change the name of Faneuil Hall, where there was an overwhelming vote, uh, Mike, to change the name, but the three folks that voted against it would would be identified as conservative slash moderate, as as Gen has put it. Um, so. I guess she's would be someone who would continue that kind of thought uh, or that, you know, they would represent one half of that division on the city council. And it's just interesting uh, to, to see. I guess I wouldn't expect to hear this at this point at this time on this city council, uh, which is overwhelmingly uh, persons of color at this point and 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 women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think. um the opposition to the Faneuil Hall piece, uh, or the the three counselors that opposed that, I, I think kind of came from more of a, um, you know, a, 
I don't want to say practical, but logistics standpoint where they wanted a, a plan for renaming it in place, didn't think that it would be good just to rename it right away. Um, and you can say that that's, uh, you know, you can take that however you want as far as, um, uh, you know, how forthcoming that is about how they actually feel. Um, but you're right about this rift between the councils and frankly, between the, the white members and the, the members of color on the council, um, that's not going to go away. I mean, it's kind of been the, the cornerstone, a cornerstone of Boston politics for, you know, generations and generations. Because this council is as progressive as it is in the majority right now, doesn't mean that that minority is, is really going away anytime soon. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, another at-large councilor was elected to kind of carry on those traditions because there is... Uh, constituency for that uh, in a lot of ways. Um, Dorchester is going to have a new district city councilor coming up and um, the the energy of more conservative or moderate white voters uh, does tend to find a candidate to support. What's your take on it, Katie? You know, I think one thing that's interesting is we're we're off a coming off a p- preliminary election where Ricardo Arroyo and Kendra Lara. Um, lost their seats. There was a lot of talk at the time around, you know, maybe the the voters of Boston, maybe the council is ready to turn the page after what's been a pretty dramatic and divisive uh, internally year. Uh, but, you know, I think the dynamics of the council are, are going to remain. I think it, it might not be a clean slate when the when the new term starts. I think there's still a lot, uh, as long as we see those those factions both along uh, racial lines and along political lines, I, I, it'll be interesting to see just how how much uh, the council is able to to forge ahead once the new term begins with a with a new makeup. Um, I want to point out so the just because they voted to change the name doesn't mean the name automatically changes. It has to, as Mayor Wu said, go to the Public Facilities Commission and they get to weigh in. And then I think she has to vote on it as I mean sign it into law as well. So there are many steps before this would become reality. Um, what is being suggested, which I think should happen, is there'd be a lot of conversations about what to change the name to. And in fact, uh, one of the members who voted against it said, hey, if you told me what it was going to be changed to, to maybe I would have supported it, but I don't, I'm not doing a blind vote because I don't know what it's going to be after you remove this name. So there's that. Um, I We've had so many transportation issues. <laughs> the T is like almost a running joke, not for Philip Ang, the <laughs> manager, I'm sure. But I just want to note that uh, Mayor Wu has named Mary Skelton Roberts to the NBA MBTA board. And I wanted to hear from uh, you all uh, where you would, how you would rate this on insignificance. Uh, she seems to have quite a bit of background on it. Um, seems to be a good person to be on the board. But as we know, that board is is very important at this moment. Katie, I'll start with you. Yeah, we, we see this new board member already uh, raising questions in meetings about what what the repair work on the Green Line extension is going to mean for the, the system as a whole. She seems very engaged in keeping, you know, I think the the needs of her, her constituency as a Boston representative at, at mind. It's a, like you say, Callie, the, the board has a lot of work ahead of them. So we'll, we'll see where it goes. Um, her name is Mary Skelton Roberts again. Um, she's defined as by Bruce, one of your colleagues over at uh, Commonwealth Magazine, as a knowledgeable transportation expert. 
Yeah, and and she'll be working uh, closely with with Mayor Wu. Um, I, I, even even before her first meeting, uh, she and Mayor Wu were pushing for uh, making the Fairmount line uh, free uh, during during the the red line shutdown uh, in Dorchester and Mattapan because it, you know the, the same communities are served by the by the Fairmount line. You know, I, I I think this is this is a pretty big deal, and this is very important to uh, you know uh, Mayor Wu. Mayor Wu actually sat in on an entire uh, MBTA board meeting. Uh, back in August, uh, after the um, uh, after Boston got its board seat, uh, you know, obviously making a point with her presence there that that this is this is an important seat, and 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 the person sitting in it, uh, she she views as as someone um, who can who can really focus on policy and and to, to the benefit of the Boston residents, um, you know, and, and I and I think what my sense from from talking with uh, uh, Ms. Roberts is that you know she's going to be focusing a lot on on uh, buses. Um, that's where obviously that makes sense because the city owns the roads, MBTA runs the buses, so uh, it makes sense for for there to be that uh, intersection of of, uh, of co working um, as well as with other other cities in in greater the greater Boston area. Uh, Mike, she was a senior advisor to the Climate Beacon Project. Previously worked for the Energy Foundation and the Bar Foundation, and they're both charitable organizations targeting climate change. Um, uh, what say you about this appointment? Yeah, I think um, she'll definitely have a climate focus. That was one thing that uh, the mayor uh, was looking for, and I think the governor would probably agree with it. I think another thing to point out is that this is a pretty big policy win for the mayor and the governor as a combo. This is something that Charlie Baker and Marty Walsh couldn't get done. Uh, Walsh had been asking for years and years, and Baker was never going to let Boston have a seat on the MVTA board. uh, Governor Healy comes in and and that changes. This is a you know there it's these small changes that Healy's making in attitude in in kind of oversight and um, allowing Boston to have another seat, which actually Healy got another seat to appoint herself out of it <laughs> out of the uh, the deal. But then had the legislature approve that move, something that had been a no go for years and years and years, is a pretty big deal. All right. Well, we're gonna have to leave it there right now. I enjoyed the conversation with all three of you, knowledgeable folks, and I thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Great to be with you, Kelly. Katie Lannon is the State House reporter for GBH News. Gen Dumchis is a reporter for Commonwealth Magazine. And Mike Dean is a co-writer of the Boston Axios Newsletter. Coming up, it's Halloween, the month of all things spooky and scary, from horror movies to haunted mansions to gardens. Gardens, you ask? Turns out, cultivated plant poisons are the cause of any number of fictional murders. Writer and gardener Marta McDowell traces mystery writers' use of gardens in their tales of deceit and deception in her new book, Gardening Can Be Murder, How Poisonous Poppies, Sinister Shovels, and Grim Gardens Have Inspired Mystery Writers. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley.